So I pray that you would do your work now, Lord. Uh, for those of us who need to be encouraged, encourage us. For those of us who need to be warned, warn us, Lord. So, and everything in between, Lord. Just do your work. Uh, accomplish your will. Speak to us from your words. And we ask it in your mighty and precious name. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Go ahead and find a Bible if you don't have one. We do have some. Looks like Scott's doing the Pike Place Fish Market Chuck with a few. No, I'm just joking. Um, Scott, if they don't have one, just slip it to them like a drug deal and be like, you need this. It's the good stuff. Acts chapter 4 is where we're going to be. We don't do announcements at this church because nobody listens to announcements. Like, no offense to you guys, but you're terrible at listening to announcements. And I've been to church, yeah, I've been to churches where they do announcements all the time. And then people are like, I didn't know this was happening. It's like, we announced it. But like, yeah, I don't listen to that. I've been to churches where I've done announcements and didn't listen to the announcements. So it's not just you guys, it's everybody. Um, but just a heads up, there is a women's retreat coming up for which there's a flyer down here. Um, the dates are on the website. Uh, there is small groups starting. We start a new quarter after Easter. Some of those are starting this week. Some of them are next week. Check the website for those as well. Uh, there's a baptism coming up in May, May 16th. So if you're interested in being baptized or that rings a bell, you're like, oh, yeah. And then uh, we have our growth track class, which if you're new to this church or just checking it out and you're like, what's this church all about? Um, we'll have the rattlesnakes and the goat sacrifice already, and we'll go through all of it. No. We're not doing any of that, but uh, there is this sense in which you try out a new church, you're like, yeah, I kind of like it, but what are they about? Why are they doing this? What's their deal? What's... So we have a class. It's about two hours. We feed you. It's at our church offices. Uh, we do it Sunday nights. That's happening tonight. Uh, so if you're interested in that, Stephen right there in the middle uh, is running that. He'll be up here at the front in the blue shirt afterwards. If you come up and talk to him, you'd be like, hey, I want to come to the thing tonight and I want to make sure I have dinner. Uh, he'll get your order and get you set up for that. So here we go. Acts chapter four. Uh, we're going to pick it up this morning. Uh, towards the middle of the chapter, we're going to start in verse 23. If you didn't know, this is our fourth week in uh, the book of, or the chapter four of Acts, which is a lot. And if you're thinking like, man, we're going slow, what's happening here is we're running into uh, the first time the church does a lot of these things. And so what happens the first time you do anything, it kind of sets the tone for things that are going to take place afterwards, right? Your first job probably influenced your ideas of work and, you know, what a boss should be doing and, and probably set the tone for a few jobs after that. Your first, you know, interaction with school or a teacher probably, if you had a terrible experience in school, you're probably not signing up for college. Like, no, I'm good, right? Um, your first experience with church, Right? Some of you had great experiences with church as a youngster, and so you probably overcame some difficulty later on in your life to make it to a church and be a part of a church where other people had a terrible first experience with church, and they're just like, I'm good, and they treat the rest of their church experience with skepticism. So this, this first time we run into these things is a big deal, and the very first time we see the church running into opposition is here in Acts chapter 4. And so we're going to take a look at it. We're going to learn some stuff from it. This is going to be a little more of a, uh, sometimes we do story time teachings. Uh, this is going to be a little more of like, 
hey, let's look at how they handled this. There's five great points that we could pull out of this because I promise you, opposition is coming. Difficulty is coming. This is one of those messages that as I teach it, you're not going to be waiting for like 20 years to apply it. It's going to happen this afternoon. And so I'm going to have five points. If you're a note taker, uh, we're going to see how to handle opposition. It's this great pattern from the church, the early church, as they see the difficulty. So we're going to jump in Acts chapter 4. Starting in verse 23, leading up to where we are in verse 23, if you remember, Jesus dies on the cross in the spring, right? He's resurrected three days later, still in the spring. Uh, and then about 40 days after that, it says he spends 40 days teaching the apostles, uh, hanging out with him. 40 days after that, uh, Jesus ascends back into heaven. And then 10 days after that, uh, the Holy Spirit comes and the church is born on the day of Pentecost. So we're two months-ish uh, from Jesus dying on the cross sometime in the summer uh, of that very first summer of the Christian church. And what happened is during that 40-day period, Jesus told them, you're going to be my witnesses starting here where you live and then moving to the country that you're in and then moving to the country next door and to the ends of the earth. And so They've done that. They've started to be his witnesses. They've started to preach the gospel. They've started to tell people that Jesus actually conquered death. He actually rose from the dead. So at one point, uh, Peter and John are walking into the temple courts. There's a guy sitting there at the gates at the entrance of the temple. They heal him in the name of Jesus. He walks in, starts to rejoice, celebrate. There's a crowd gathered around because they're like, hey, this guy's healed. Peter starts to preach the gospel to him and says the religious leaders, the Jewish religious leaders, are very annoyed that they're preaching about Easter Sunday. They're preaching about the resurrection. And so they arrest him. They send him into jail overnight. Uh, and the next morning, they threaten their lives, which is a very real threat. Because remember, these are the religious leaders who just two months earlier crucified Jesus and watched him basically get murdered. So they're not just like, you know, slap on the wrist. They're like, hey, no more. Get, don't do it. You know what we're capable of. And then they send him off. And that's where we pick it up. Acts chapter 4, verse 23. It says this. And when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why do the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers are gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate among the Gentiles and the people of Israel. And to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. While you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Now, what we have here is not only the first real encounter with opposition, but an incredible example of what it looks like to navigate adversity. And yes, every situation is different, but there are some practical things that we can pull out of this. And so I said earlier, we're going to have five points. The first one is this. Opposition comes 
And the, the first thing we see the church do is double down on their God focus. So if you want to write that point down, that's a good one. A God focus. Why is that a big deal? You guys have all been in hard situations, right? You've all been through difficult things. What's the tendency? To focus on God? No, to focus on the problem, right? You start, they did this to me, and they said that, and I get, and you start replaying it over and over in your mind, right? I can't believe they should have, and then you start making, like, daydreaming a little bit. Well, what if I would have said this, right? And you start to daydream about comebacks that you weren't smart enough to think of in the moment. And, the, and like, if you're like me, like, six or seven hours later, like, you have, like, severe martial arts training in your daydream, and you're, like, punching people in the neck, like, don't talk like that to me, right? Because you're focused on the problem. And you just replay the problem over and over and over in your mind. And that's what we do. The apostles get out of jail. They receive threats. They go back to the church. They tell their story. And the text says when they hear it, they begin to pray. They, they focus on God. Right? They focus on, they have an upward focus. It was an immediate reaction. And the focus was not on the issue, but on God, which is so different than how we as humans think we should handle these situations. We go through these things and we focus on, this is hard, this is bad, they should never have said this. Yes, they were wrong. We focus on the hurt. We focus on ourselves. We focus on the person that hurt us. And maybe they were really 100% of the problem. Like in this situation, there was 0% of the liability that fell on the apostles in this moment. And yet, they still focus on God. Because Yes, it feels good to mentally justify yourself. Yes, it's like a quick like painkiller to just talk about how wrong they were. But that type of focus will never get you where you want to go in life. It'll just never produce the kind of results that you want to have in the type of growth that God has for you. Without a God focus, without an upward focus, without an intentionality of focusing on the God whom we worship, you cannot properly understand your circumstances. And what happens as they focus on God is there's, there starts some, to be some, information, some interpretation of the things that are going on in their life. We're going to read about that in a second. This is important because... I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where you cannot interpret what's going on. Is that a frustrating circumstance? Right? I look at my buddy Scott, we just went to Uganda, right? I'm sure there's moments where you're trying to interpret what's going on. You're like, I don't know what this means at all. I, I think about when I lived in Australia. Uh, it's such a weird trans, like, I know I'm old right now, and all you kids are like, okay, uphill both ways to school. Yeah, I get it. But, like, I moved to Australia. We didn't have cell phones and stuff like that. So I literally had an email that said, fly to Sydney, get on the train to Newcastle. When you get there, call this number. And I went across the world with that. That was all the information I had. No way to contact people, nothing, right? So I do it. I fly to Sydney. I get on the train. I find it to Newcastle. I get to Newcastle. I'm like, Call this number, right? So there's still pay phones in those days for those kids that don't know what that is. There was phones, big ones, out on the street, and you put money in them and called. So I get to the pay phone, right? And I'm looking at the change that I have, and it's Australian, so I have no idea what any of it means. I was like, how much is this worth? I don't know. It says 25, right? So like I, I put the money in, right? Or actually, no, the first thing I did was pick up the phone, and the phone is ringing, which is weird. I'm like, 
that's not how it works in the U.S. It's like, I'm like uh. okay, so I hang it up again, pick it up. Nope, still ringing. I was like, well, maybe somebody will answer. So I wait for a little bit. Nobody answers, just ringing. I was like, okay, so maybe I got to pay for it first. So I find some money. The problem is I have no idea how much it costs because it's like outside of a train station. So it's been all graffitied up and everything scratched off. So I was like, I don't know how much phone calls cost in Australia, right? I know the transfer rate was not great at the time. So I'm like, uh, let's try this. So I put a bunch of coins in there, pick it up, still ringing. I was like, dang it, didn't work. So I was like, I don't know what to happen. So I was like, well, let me just try to dial the number. So I dial the number, dial it, sounds like a busy signal to me. I was like, oh, jeez. So I was like, I don't know what to do. So I'm like, well, maybe I didn't put enough money in, right? Because if you've ever picked up a pay phone and dialed and you didn't put enough money in, it gives you the busy signal. So I was like, maybe the coin's the problem. So I find my $2 coin, right? I put it in. Still ringing. Okay, well, dial the number. I was like, dang it. I was like, it's busy, so I hang up. I'm really annoyed, right? It's been like 10 minutes now. I can't figure out how to make a phone call, and I'm out like three bucks already, right? So I wait five minutes, right, thinking that maybe the person I called is busy. I put more money in there. Hang up again. So I'm like, they're on the phone, probably having some like really long conversation. I'm so annoyed. I'm stuck here. I don't know what I'm going to do. So then I'm running out of $2 coins. Right? So I put my last $2 coin in, dial the number. Ah, I'm so annoyed. And then, hello? And I was like, what? I had no idea. In Australia, the ringing sound is the dial tone. That would have been helpful to know. That's the ringtone, right? Sounds like our busy signal. I don't know who came up with it. Somebody guy who, who hates Americans, probably. He's like, watch him try to figure this out. But lesson learned if you have 45 minutes and like $7 and change, you probably figure it out. Right? But I had no idea how to interpret all this stuff. I'm just so frustrated. I don't know what this sound means. I don't know what that sound means. I don't know what this. And so that what could be happening, right? Because that's a funny example of like, oh, a guy trying to make a phone call in Australia. The funny part about it was is they picked up and I was like, oh, finally. And they're like, who's this? And I was like, I'm here for the Bible college. And they're like, are you at the train station? I was like, yeah. And they're like, cool, see you in a minute. And I hung up and I sat down on the bench now realizing I have no idea who I'm looking for or where they're going to be coming from. So I was like, I don't know. <laughs> like, how are they going to find me? Anyway, long story short, I didn't die. But it's a funny example of like, oh, like we had these weird expectations when we picked up a phone, but he couldn't figure out how to make a phone call. It's not near as funny when you have weird expectations in a marriage or when you have kids, or when you have a relationship, or a friendship, or a job, or a church set, like, those aren't near as funny when we don't know how to interpret what we're going through. And so what happens here is, as they go into this difficulty, they focus on God, and what they find is that the Word of God starts to interpret the things they are going through. Look at what happens in verse 24. This is what they pray for, very first. They say, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. So they remind them, they focus on God. They're like, hey, let's pray. And then they remind themselves of who God is. And what they do in that moment is they now begin to interpret the things that are going on around them in light of who God is. Right? The creator God that the Bible tells us made everything and knows everything. They call him in this prayer sovereign. So here's our second point. Write it down. God is sovereign. 
And it's important because this influences your interpretation of literally everything in your life. Literally every single thing that you will go through will have a different interpretation if you understand that God is sovereign. Now, if you look in your Bible, you will see the Bible teaches that God is sovereign. It's not a word that we use a ton. So the definition, so you know, of sovereign, if you look it up in your dictionary or on the internet, which is what I really did, not in a dictionary at all, uh, is one possessing supreme power over a specific sphere, right? So if you had political sovereignty, you would, in this political realm, you would have supreme power, right? So, so it's the idea of supreme power over this this realm, this, this area. And what the Bible teaches is God is sovereign over everything that is created. All that exists was created, so God is sovereign over everything that we know. Now, that may help you, it may not. But as we read through the Bible, the Bible breaks down the sovereignty of God into three components that I think are really helpful to understand. Okay, So this supreme power is revealed in God's control, his authority, and his presence. Those three things together, like control, authority, and presence, you mix those together, you bind those together like a cord, and that makes up the sovereignty of God. He has the authority over all that was created. He has control over all that was created, and he is present in all that was created, and that makes up his sovereignty. Let's break it down a little bit more. Maybe this will help you. If you remove one of those, it makes the other two mute. They're, they're not as powerful, right? Like, I know how to operate a car, okay? I know how to drive it, turn it on, do the whole thing. So if I go to your car and I turn it on and I push the gas and I make it go, I can control it, right? I'm present in it. But if I don't have the authority to actually be driving your car, it's called Grand Theft Auto, right? So God has the authority that's in place, right? He, it's, authority is like a legal term. It's like, no, no, he has this right over things. Now, in other circumstances, you have the authority and you have the presence, but you don't have the control. We saw that all summer long, right, with the riots. There was police there. Like, they had the legal authority. They were present. They were in the right spot, but there were so many people rioting and so much destruction happening, they just didn't have any control. So who felt safe in that environment? Nobody. Ask any of the business owners that got looted and all of these kinds of things, right? Nobody felt safe. Well, they had the authority and they were present, but they didn't have the actual control. They couldn't actually do anything about it. And so it left the other two impotent, right? And what about the third one? Presence. We have this thing in my house. My daughter, uh, she's two, which is right about the age that you realize you can use your teeth as a weapon, right? And so she started biting her brother. Not all the time, but if she gets really mad and like his arm just happens to find itself in her mouth, she's biting for sure. And so what happens is if I'm there, she won't bite. Why? Because I have the authority, and sometimes I've, I've exercised control. Like, I've seen her, like, get super mad and, like, reach to bite, and I'm like, no, 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 don't bite him, right? And I've, like, grabbed her arm and be like, don't bite, right? But if I'm not there, about every two months, Dad, Jordan bit me, right? I have the authority. I've told her not to bite. I have the control, but the control doesn't mean anything because I'm not present, if I'm not actually in the room, I can't stop her from biting her brother. So those three things work together. God has the authority. 
He can control the situation in our lives. And he is constantly present. The Bible teaches that this is the three things that make up the sovereignty of God. It's this combination of control, authority, and presence. And so, every single thing that we face in life, we can understand as if it was filtered through the authority, control, and presence of God. None of the stuff that you're facing, none of the difficulty you're facing, none of it is a surprise to God. He's not like, what? I had no idea. Like, this is, this is not happening, right? Believers reminding themselves that God is sovereign is such a powerful tool, right? Because he said stuff, and then when it came to pass, we know it wasn't a surprise to him, right? Because we do this thing as Christians. We're like, I know the Bible says love my neighbor, but God, my neighbor sucks, did, did God know who your neighbor was going to be when he put that in his word? Or did, is there like an appendix in your Bible? It's like, except for you, Jeff, because your neighbor, whoo, that guy, right? No, no, like, or, or when we get to the parts where it says, like, husbands, love your wives. Like, yeah, but you don't know what she did this week. Actually, if you remind yourself of the sovereignty of God, if you remind yourself that he knows all the things that are going on, you can go, oh, he knew what was coming in my life when he said those things, when he put that instruction into place. And so there must be an area with which I can continue to obey him, even in the face of this incredible difficulty. There's this beautiful poetic word picture in the Old Testament uh, where God says, he says this about himself, that he told the oceans where their boundaries were. Have you ever been to like the Oregon coast and like the waves are crashing and it's crazy? And like the picture I have in my mind is like there's a line in the sand and God's like dragging his foot. And he says, thus far may your waves come and no further. Isn't that incredible? Like just God's like, no, 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 you stop right here. You don't go one centimeter further than I will allow. Now, there is this, if you're, if you're sitting here like critically thinking, thinking way down the line, you're like if God is in control of all of this stuff, like how come things are really bad? You know, well, God did this thing where he, in his sovereignty, allowed mankind free will. He said, hey guys, you get to pick whether or not you want to love me or not. I'm not going to make robots that have to obey me. You get to choose. And so he didn't relinquish his sovereignty, but he used his sovereignty to allow us to choose. And, and we're suffering the consequences of that in many areas of life. In fact, the opposition that we find the apostles facing right now is a result of these Jewish religious leaders using their free choice to oppose the work of God. I want to point out, I hope you can see how this upward God focus and this reminding of ourselves of God's sovereignty, his authority, control, and presence can completely change the perspective of the difficulty in front of us. It's not a surprise to him. It's not news to him. It's not out of the ordinary to him. In fact, we can also go a step further, and if we look at what the, the apostles are praying here, we can use this to... Uh, inform our expectations, right? Expectations are huge when we go into a situation like this. 
Expectations are huge anyway. I don't know if you've ever been to like a fast food restaurant and you order like an orange soda and then you get it and it's like a Diet Coke. And you're like, oh, like what happened to your orange soda? There's like these like two seconds of your life that you're like, oh my gosh, what happened? Right? And if the guy at the register would have just been like, hey, we're out of orange soda. All we got is Diet Coke. If you're real thirsty, you'd be like, all right, whatever. It's all just sugar in water anyway, right? So you wouldn't have cared too much. You'd have been like, Diet Coke, not my favorite, but I'm thirsty. But because he didn't say anything, because your expectations were that you were going to be sucking orange soda through that straw, when you get Diet Coke, you're like, oh! And again, kind of funny when you're drinking a soda, not as funny when you're married or kids or school or opposition. So what, as they go through this difficulty, they have this God focus. They r- focus on the sovereignty of God, and then they use the word of God to frame their expectations. Look at verse 25. It says, Who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan predestined to take place. So they go to the Old Testament. And the Old Testament points out that the people of earth who do not intend to follow God are consistently opposed to, emotionally resistant of, and planning against God, his people, and the things he's doing. Right? This is, this is not new. But the people who are like, nah, God, we're good. We're going to do our own thing. They are opposed to consistently, like emotionally not on board with, and are actively planning against the work of God in the world. So if you endeavor to change your trajectory and partner with God in what he's doing on planet Earth, you're going to find yourself opposed to these people who don't love God. That's, that's the quote of the verse they said. Why do the Gentiles rage? Gentiles are people who didn't follow God in those days. Why do the nations plot? They plan against God, against his anointed, against the people who are working for what God is doing in the world. Now think about that for a second. Everybody on planet Earth is on one of two sides. They're with God or they're against God. Right? This is what Jesus said. Now, God then took Jesus and put him in Jerusalem, knowing that Pontius Pilate was there, knowing that Herod was there, knowing that the Jewish religious leaders would want to crucify him, knowing that there were Gentile non-believers in God who would jump on the bandwagon and say, yeah, crucify him, and then other Jewish people who would misunderstand that he was the chosen one, the sent promised Messiah from Genesis chapter 3, all of them would work together to oppose Jesus and lead to his crucifixion. So they're reminding themselves here, if God put Jesus in Jerusalem knowing these people would be opposing him, isn't it not only possible but probable that God would put us in situations where he knew there would be people opposing us? How does that frame your expectations? Right? Well, if you're thinking you're getting orange soda and you're getting Diet Coke, you're going to be really upset. But if you go into a situation knowing that if these people are not believers in God, there's a pretty good chance that I'm going to face opposition 
and we expect it. We go, all right, I get it. I get this is the plan, right? There's, I, I point this out, not to be Mr. Doomsday, right? Like, everybody's against us, because I think we take that too far sometimes, right? For every mile of road, there's two miles of ditch, right? So you can go off either side, right? You can go like, oh, man, everybody's against us. They all hate us. Or you could just be like, no, everybody's our friend. I'm like, no, not everybody's your friend, right? So don't, don't get into this like it's us against the world thing. But there is this version of Christianity that would tell you that if God is in something, then everything's going to be smooth and easy and comfortable, and you're going to love it, and you're going to end up healthy, rich, and, and everything's going to go your way. It's just not in the Bible. That's the problem. Just this pesky little detail. It's not true. Okay? So, so I get the idea that in the end, everything's going to end up great. I, I get the idea that the outcomes of God's redemption for planet Earth is going to end up wonderful. But the process of getting there is not going to be always comfortable. There will be opposition. That's what the Bible tells us. There will be people conflicting against us. It's kind of like having a baby. Right? Uh, I've not had a baby, but I've watched my wife have a baby. Right? In the end, it's awesome. Right? It's an incredible experience. It's wonderful. It's beautiful. It's incredible. It's like mind blowing, like the science that's going on in there. You're like, holy cow, how does that happen? Right? It's great. The process of getting there, sometimes difficult, I've been told. Right? Just by observation, like there's labor pains, there's things going on that weren't the awesomest right? There's some like, you did this to me, right? Going on in the, the lead up to the actual having of the baby. And the Bible actually uses that exact example to talk about God's redemption plan for the earth. He says, there's labor pains. He says, yes, God loves people. Yes, God is redeeming all things. Yes, God sent Jesus to bring God's kingdom on the earth. And yes, there's a future and a hope in heaven for all of those who believe in him. But right now, what you're experiencing is not the, the outcomes. It's the process. And it's like labor pains. It's like difficulty. You can expect that there are going to be some uncomfortable situations if you desire to follow God. Expectations Make all the difference. So here's what we've seen so far. They focus on God, not the problem. They remind themselves of God's sovereignty. They recalibrate with these biblical expectations. And now because they already have the expectation that difficulty will come, they don't actually pray against the difficulty. What do they pray for? Look at verse 29. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. Here's the great thing about having correct expectations. If you know the difficulty is coming, then you won't pray against the difficulty. You will pray like they do for the grace to handle the difficulty well. Do you see the difference? Right? This is incredible because so often we find ourselves in difficulty and what do we pray for? God, make this go away. God, make the difficulty go, make it easier on me, make this more comfortable. I would like this to be short and sweet and over with immediately, if possible. Amen. You were just arrested. You were just thrown in prison. You were just threatened your life. What would you pray for? Think about it. What would you pray for? 
I didn't deserve that treatment. I didn't deserve threats on my life. I didn't deserve to be in prison for a night. I don't deserve to be like this. So what do you pray for? What would the first thing you pray for be? Look at their prayer. God, look on their threats. Don't fix them. Fix us. Isn't that incredible? He doesn't pray against the difficulty. They pray for something to change inside of them. They don't pray for the difficulty to go away. They don't pray for the opposition to change. They don't pray, God, don't you know what's going on? Why don't you smoke them all with a nuke or something or just strike them with lightning bolts or get them out of here? Like, they say, God, give us the boldness to continue to do what we know we should do. Most of us would pray, God, look upon their threats and change them. But that's not what happens here. These say, God, look upon their threats and do something different inside of us. That's an incredible change in perspective, right? And it comes because their first focus was on God, not on the problem. It comes because they reminded themselves of God's sovereignty. It comes because they align their expectations with what the word of God says. And now they can pray effective prayers. The focus is inward first. Uh, So many of us, when things become difficult, we pray for the situation to change. We don't pray for our hearts to change. It's a good reminder, isn't it? When we go into prayer, God may or may not change your circumstances. I don't know. I don't know his plan. He knows a lot more than I do. He's sovereign. We We already understood that. He does things that don't make sense to us sometimes. He may or may not change your circumstances, but he will always, if you allow him, change your heart. So when we talk about effective prayer, it depends on what your expectations are going into it. If you only think prayer is effective when it changes the outcomes, you're missing it. Because he could change what's in your heart every single time you pray. Every single time prayer could be effective if that's the goal. And here's what we have here that's more powerful than maybe you understand. We have believers praying for the power to do what they know they should do. You see that? We have believers saying, hey, God, this is what we know we should do. We might not be able to do it. Will you give us the strength to continue to do it? Give us the boldness to face this opposition and do what we know we should do. There's a misunderstanding that sets in when you hang around church for a while, and that's that church people are doing it right and non-church people are doing it wrong. Right? You ever felt that in a church before? Like, we all got to figure it out. Everybody out there, they don't know what the heck they're doing. But that, that's not actually true. Right? This idea that people don't do what they know they should do, that's not a believer-unbeliever thing. That's a humanity thing. So if you're human, you have the tendency to not do what you know you should do. So what separates people inside from outside should not be like, we're doing it all right, they're doing it all wrong. It's no, no, we all have the tendency to do it wrong. We all have the tendency to not do what we know we should do. The people in this room listening to the word of God are simply humble enough to pray for the strength of God to walk it out. It's not that we're good and they're bad. It's that we all, we know we're bad. And we're like, God, please help us. Please help us. If an unbeliever walks in here and the message that they get is like, you need to get it figured out, like we got to figure it out. 
Why would they ever come back? I get it. When people are like, churches are full of hypocrites and self-righteous and judgmental, and I'm not into that. I get it. There's a lot of churches out there where the message is like, we got to figure it out. When you get it figured out like we got to figure it out, you can join the club and we'll do the special handshake and we'll use the code language, brother and sister and hallelujah and praise the Lord. That's not the message of the church. It never has been. The message of the church is, hey, come on in. We realize that we don't have it figured out, but we're praying for God's grace to do what we know we should do. If you want to pray for God's grace for you to do what you know you should do, then come be a part of that. Right? That's a much more honest and genuine and authentic invitation. I'm, I'm running out of time, so i got to finish fast. I'm going to point this out quickly because I point it out as often as possible. I think it's a crucial piece of the puzzle. The end of verse 31, the Holy Spirit gave them power to do what? Speak the word of God. Speak the word of God. Again, uh, there's people in this world who have drifted from the word of God, and they claim that it's by the leading of the Holy Spirit. Not in my Bible, right? The Holy Spirit leads you to the Word of God. The Holy Spirit presses you into the Word of God. The Holy Spirit always drives people back to the Word of God. It doesn't circumnavigate the Word of God. It doesn't add on to the Word of God. It's not like a parallel experience where like, oh, I had the Word of God, and then the Holy Spirit has this other set of experiences that are unrelated. No, no, no. The Holy Spirit is always driving people to the Word of God. It's one of the fruits where, by which you can tell if this is really Spirit-led or if this is something else. And then let's finish here. We see in this passage that at the very first sign of difficulty, the church responds incredibly well. They focus on God. They remind themselves of his sovereignty. They calibrate their expectations with the word of God. And they pray that their hearts would change. And it's amazing how often other things fall into focus, clear focus, when we do these things first. Right? We have this crazy situation, and our, our immediate reaction is like, focus on the situation, figure the situation, get it solved, solve the problem, figure out ways, logistic, like let's get into the problem and get it conquered. When the healthiest thing for us is to look at God, and then the problem falls into the correct priority and perspective. And here's the thing. I know it's counterintuitive. I know it's hard to do. I know it's the opposite of what you feel like doing. <clears throat> To have a problem and to focus on God and then ask him to change your heart even when the other person or the other people or the other group are clearly the problem, that's a difficult thing to do. But the Bible makes no apologies for this high calling. There's no softening of this, like, oh, this is really hard, but, you know, if you want to, like, ease into it, like, we could start with a low weight and then, like, work our way. No, no, no. It's, it's like, do you want what God has for you or not? Like, this is what that weighs. Focus on God in your problems. Do, do you want to see God transform your lives? Do you want to see God do incredible things? Do you want that exceedingly abundantly life that Jesus talked about? It will require you to humble yourself, but it's really the only path to life, to focus on God, to remind ourselves of his sovereignty, to align our expectations with the word of God, and to pray for our hearts to change. It's difficult, but it's worth it. The Bible's not saying, like, if you don't feel like doing it, there's another way. No, there isn't another way. There's not a soft version of this. I 
like I said, I don't want to be Mr. Doomsday here, but a lot of messages I teach are like kind of like hypothetical in a sense. And that like you may or may not be dealing with this thing. You may or may not have opportunity to apply the principles that we learn. Not this one. You're going to have opportunity to figure this out today. Right? Like we're going to sing this last song and you are going to pray and then you're going to walk out the doors and you will have an opportunity to handle opposition well like 30 seconds from now. I promise. Like this is not like someday over the rainbow. This is happening. Right? You are going to find difficulties. You are going to find opposition. Right? It's going to be your spouse. It's going to be your kids. It's going to be your boss. It's going to be your employees. It's going to be people you have relationships with, your extended family, your in-laws. It's going to be the guy driving next to you on the Maple Street Bridge that can't figure out that there's two lanes, so quit driving down the middle. It's going to be the guy in the line at the grocery store who still writes checks. Please use a card. I don't have 45 minutes to stand in line. Can we get another checker up here? I mean, this is happening. It's happening. I promise. I pray that God uses it. Start small. If we get this, man, if we get this, the sky's the limit. What, what would it be if your invitation to people to church, right? Hey, come to my church. Why? So I can be told how bad I am by a bunch of people? No, no, no. No. So you can come into people, a group of people who just focus on God, remind themselves of his sovereignty, his goodness, what the word of God says about the life, and then pray for him to change their hearts. Who's saying no to that? Like, sounds like a judgmental place, not into it. No, a bunch of people praying that God would change their hearts because they're grateful for what he's done for them. That's who we are. That's why our lives have changed, amen? Let's stand, let's sing this last song. Jake, come on up. Father, we thank you for your words. Uh, we thank you for your sovereignty. Lord, that you have authority in this world, that you have control over this world, and that you are present in our lives. And Lord, we thank you for the assurance that whatever we're facing, it's not a surprise to you. Whatever we're facing, it has not derailed your plans for our lives. And so, Father, change our hearts. Allow us to deal with the difficulties well. Allow us to navigate the struggles. Lord, and there's people in this room who this morning are going something really hard and they're like, I don't know if I could do it. I pray for grace upon their lives. I pray for an extra gift of the Holy Spirit to see clearly who you are, that how your sovereignty changes everything. And that would encourage their hearts to walk in obedience in difficult times, Lord. Lord, we desire to be a people who do what we know we should do by the power of your spirit. Give us that grace. We ask you in your mighty and precious name. Amen.